0: Ms. is 10 years old. It's not simply a magazine that is 10 years old, but a certain kind of magazine representing, I guess, a tremendous change in uh, the psyche of our country and attitudes. Men toward women, women toward men. Certainly the magazine of the feminist movement. And one of the editors, one of the key figures, the spark plug of it, is Gloria Steinem, and she's guest today, talking about, I guess, the meaning of Ms. and its 10th anniversary and where we were I say we because we're one way or another. You should. We're in this together. (laughs) And where we're heading as the women who write for Ms., and occasional men who write for Ms. see it. So it's the 10th anniversary. First of all, congratulations. Thank you. And the program in a moment with music after this message.
1: Shalom. Voice of the Lord. Come, ye who have been first in the battle, who strive and sorrow. Scorned, spurned, not have ye cared, raising your eyes to a wider morrow. Ways that are weary, days that are dreary, toil.
0: As we hear the trumpets, I was thinking of that song "Shoulder to Shoulder." How far women have come, or have not come, since the turn of the century. "Lad of Ireland, Shoulder to show written by the British composer, a woman, Ethel Smith, of Gloria Steinem. Thoughts on hearing that?
2: For a minute there, it made me want to cry a little bit because the bravery of women who stand up for their rights and um, often meet with ridicule opposition almost seems like a step forward you know because that yeah. means you're being taken seriously but <laughs> but the kind of ridicule that women of all races seem to uniquely get when they you know stand up for themselves and the courage of those women it's it's <laughs> it, it really is moving and i think anybody who saw that bbc series yeah. on the the suffragist uh, movement in england would be moved
0: you know i'm thinking of something closer to home here in illinois uh, then there was you know, the battle, almost by 90 years ago, uh, there they were, they are ridiculed by authorities with few exceptions here and there. And then a number of them, to make their cause known, went on a fast and were force fed. And here in Illinois, uh, seven women for ERA are fasting. And so we still have a way to go.
2: I, I think, yes, I mean, there's a very, it's still going on. Um, That song is just as relevant today. It it helps maybe to put it in perspective to say that that those courageous women, our foremothers, won for women a legal identity as human beings. Foremothers. For foremothers, right. (laughs) Won a a legal identity. Uh, Women had been considered chattel possessions until then. Uh, We were the Literal possessions, first of our fathers and then of our husbands. We couldn't earn money and retain it. We couldn't sign a legal contract. We couldn't. I mean, there were a myriad Mm. evidences of this, of which the vote was only one, even though that's the one that history focuses on. It took about 150 years of struggle uh, all over the world, or in many places of the world, to gain this legal identity as a human being. Now we're struggling to get legal equality. Mm. And we shouldn't be surprised that uh, since we're only about 10 10 or 15 years into this this second wave that uh, we really have a long distance to go. I
0: suppose this involves several things, as it does with black people, too, of course. Not to ignore the gains that have been made through battle all the way, at the same time, ways to go. So it's
3: both areas. yeah,
2: I, th- I think that w- one of the ways we're kept from having the courage to keep going is that we're deprived of our history, so that you know if you if, if you don't know about the black slave revolts, if you don't know if you just happen to get as I did in my history books, one sentence that said women were given the vote, nothing, nothing about hundred and fifty years yeah. of marching struggle, yeah. starving, bringing yeah. the country to the halt to a halt, it makes it seem as if not only was there no struggle, but also you should be grateful to the ruling class because they gave it to you.
0: Well, you know, this is also part of all history. I think this is, uh, books generally are about male big shots, unless it's Catherine the Great or Elizabeth I. And it's about barons and kings and noblemen, hardly about the others who mm-hmm. have been there. This is the Brecht poem, you know, Who Built the Pyramids. You know, where did the Masons go for lunch when the Chinese wall was built? And the Great One, and you can take off from there. This is about history. a 1588, you know what happened in 1588? The Spanish Armada, Francis Drake. We know that in school, but the line that Brecht has is when the Armada sank, we read that King Philip wept. Were there no other tears? <laughs> well, that's what it's
3: about. It? So yeah. the women's- it, is History private. is really,
2: yeah, it really is uh, extremely political yeah. because uh, the, the wiping out of, <clears throat> of people except in their relationship to the ruling class is very sinister. Now women are in history, but only as they were the, the mothers or the wives or the lovers of, of powerful men. And the same is true of, in a different way of, of various racial groups. Yeah. And I must say, the same is true in our own families sometimes. We sat once in an editorial meeting at, at Ms. Magazine.
0: In your own family, you mean the Ms. family?
2: No, I mean our individual families. And oh, family. And, and uh, we were talking about um, the uh, bicentennial celebration and so on. we were talking about <coughs> the women in our family. And it turned out, just going around the room, that each one of us had at least one woman in our families about whom no one spoke. <laughs> <Nope>. <laughs> that is, she was the rebel. She had uh, not conformed. Um, she had done something uh, to yeah. make change happen or yeah. to lead an individual life. And our own families concealed this woman yeah. from uh, yeah. from us. And she was the feminist. She, you Sorry. know, she was often. And so, you know, we need to go back and ask our yeah. uh, mothers and fathers and grandparents. You know, about our own relatives. Was she?
0: she was the troublemaker.
2: For instance, I had a grandmother who was um, who lived in Toledo, Ohio, and who was spoken of, of to me as a wonderful woman who was an educator, who had four sons, who kept a kosher table, uh, who was a you know an admirable woman in every way. What they didn't tell me about her was that she was also the first woman who ran for a school board and won a school board seat in Ohio, even before women had the vote. Uh, nationwide, uh, that she won this election by defeating what we would now call sexual harassment at the polls. That is, the way women were kept from voting were gangs of boys and men who would harass them and say, you know, no nice woman would be doing this. And and So she got women to go to the polls in a group, and therefore she won the vote. And she also won on a coalition ticket of the feminists, the anarchists, and the socialists. Toledo then had a socialist mayor, Golden Rule Jones. Jones. Yeah. Now, this is very important to me, but in, in my own family, that in all, in all goodwill, it in all
0: goodwill. Because she usurped a man's job.
2: Well, it just it not as if it was conscious, but no. they just didn't tell me. that. The, I guess the, I guess people tell you what they want you to do. So if they, if they sort of thought it would be better for yeah. me but to marry not, and yeah, have four she kids. Also was, do
0: she also was, your, you came from a, quote, unquote, respectable family, mm-hmm. and she was not respectable.
2: N- that not that part, part of know. what she did. Yeah. And, and the, you know, that she was in Who's Who in America. She addressed yeah. Congress. Yeah. She she marched in the and streets that, for the vote. She did all of these yeah. things. And even in my family, very nice people. Well, you know
0: what? There's a song that fits that. And then I want to ask you, of course, about Ms. and some of the articles in it and how far it's come and how it's affected a certain part of our society. This is called, this was a suffragist song, turn of the center. It fits your, your aunt. It was your aunt. Grandmother. Your grandmother keep woman in her sphere
4: I have a neighbor one of those not there I asked him what of women's rights, he said in tones of ear, my mind on that is all made up, keep woman in her sphere. I saw a man in tattered garb forth from the grog shop come. He squandered all his cash for drink and starved his wife at home. I asked him, should not woman vote? He answered with a sneer, I've taught my wife to know her place, keep woman in her sphere. I met an earnest, thoughtful man not many days ago, who pondered All human law, the honest truth to know. I asked him what of woman's cause, the answer came sincere. Her rights are just the same as mine, let woman choose. (laughs)
0: <laughs> that was, you know, that was the uh, latter part of the nineteenth century.
2: Well, but it could be uh, the Jerry Falwell Ronald Reagan theme song. Yeah, yeah.
3: So it's, now,
0: <laughs> I mean, so it's still pretty we, modern. So here we are, 1982. In 1972, came the magazine Ms. Suppose we talk about Ms. beginnings and how it's fared.
2: Well, we started it really because there were a, a lot of women writers and editors who wanted to work for a magazine we read. That was a very simple idea. We'd all worked for a wide variety of magazines, including women's magazines. And uh, though it was interesting to learn how to make 101 kind of hamburgers, and we do need to buy clothes and so on, we we didn't see a magazine that was really telling the truth about women's lives. Uh, we started it. Uh, with great optimism, made a dummy of it. a list of contributors, went around to try to raise money with resounding failure. Nobody was yeah. interested in, in a new magazine, which was tough enough, and a new feminist magazine they found quite bizarre. Uh, fortunately, I'd been working for New York Magazine and helped to start that magazine some years before, and they happened to need something as a big feature for their year-end double issue so they said that if we would produce the all the text and so on for and and work for free essentially that they would pay for the printing and the publishing so we were able to put out a little piece of it in New York and also to do a whole issue as a nationwide sample um, that was in 1972 we called it spring because uh, we were afraid I mean, it was out in January but we thought it was gonna lie in the newsstands mm-hmm. for many months um, and we all went out to try to you know, do interviews. As I must say, I am still doing, I mean, because yeah. we still don't have enough money to you know, pay for advertising. Um, and uh, I went to California and did a television show. And afterwards, lots of people called up and said, but we can't find this new magazine on the newsstand. So I called back to New York in great uh, fear and said, listen, it never got here. And they said, no, no, it's sold out. Sold out in eight days. So
0: it did, it, and
2: that was that yeah. success. I mean, it was we never would have been able to start uh, to to continue or to start at all if it hadn't been for the demonstration yeah. of, of women and men who actually who bought it and who just proved that the experts so were wrong. So then you knew
0: you touched a cord.
2: Yes, absolutely. Now, you
0: say women and men bought it. See, men bought it. Yeah, so.
2: men bought it too. It was. Mu- it, it has always been, of course, uh, mostly women because it is. Yeah. Uh, by, for, and about women, uh, but it, our readers are about 30% men well. the obvious well. question
0: for those who haven't read them is, how would it differ in articles, say, from Cosmopolitan or Redbook?
2: Well, it, it has a basic premise, which is that women are full human beings, and it doesn't argue about that premise. Other magazines are still um, publishing one article that says that women are equal, and another one in the name of objectivity saying, no, they're not. We just assume that in the same way that a a black magazine or a Hispanic magazine assumes the full humanity of the constituency it's writing about. Uh, And we assume that women have the whole full range of human choices. So unlike a magazine like Red Book, we would not assume that it is written in the sky, uh, that women have more responsibility for children or for domestic duties and cooking and so on than men do and that it will always be that way. Um, nor would we assume, like Cosmopolitan, that you, you have to, quote, catch a man, unquote, in order to be a full person, and I- at least no more than vice versa. I mean, yes, we need each you other, you remember that
0: song from Wonderful Town? You know, Ten Ways to Lose a Man? Oh, yes, yeah. right, right, right. That fits right in
3: with <laughs> Yes, us, it does. It was to, to, to be hide too smart your intelligence. And, to do yeah. that,
2: yeah. Uh, so I suppose our closest... Um, Comparison, we really don't have a comparison because there's, there's no other national feminist magazine, but in some ways we're a little bit like Esquire, I suppose, because we, we unlike other women's magazines, we publish the whole range of, of political theory, reporting, fiction, poetry, humor, everything whereas the older women's magazines are service books for women who mm. work at home, and the, the so-called newer ones are s- service books for women who are in the workforce, but mm. they don't have fiction, poetry, and other things. We try to, to, to cover the full range, I'm and right. really to be a kind of portable friend. I mean, the, 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 the dominant kind of letter we get still uh, is some version of you know, at, now I know I'm not alone, thank you, I, you know, it, it's, it's a kind, of, the magazine is meant to be a kind of portable now Has
0: friend. it, as uh, just as a weather vane, has, has it held its own circulation, how, mm-hmm. has,
2: Yeah, we've done, we've done very well, we're the, the, uh, we are a mostly text reader's magazine, that means we're comparable with Esquire the New Yorker, Harper's, um, Mother Jones, or, you know, Rolling Stone, all those kinds of magazines. We're at the high end of that we mm. with 500,000. They're all somewhere between 100,000 and 600,000. Mm. So we've, we've, we're about, yeah. I think, where we ought to well. be. I'd, I'd love to do a whole other kind of feminist magazine. I'd love to do a Feminist True Confessions in addition to this.
3: Mm. What do be- you
2: mean
0: a Feminist True Confession?
2: Well, because there, there, are, there are lots of us uh, who, who don't have the cultural habit of reading text and so we look at television and we we read um, picture magazines. And that's fine. you know, so the, the the same information ought to be available in in that form. Maybe we'll do that in the next ten yeah,
0: years. but I, I don't I don't quite get that like a feminist true confession. Well,
2: the true confessions, uh, if you look at them, they yeah. they're they are little uh, parables and and uh, these little melodramatic stories, which are instructive, but what they are instructing is that you should go out and look for, a, the knight on the white horse to save you from your your uh, unwed pregnancy or your dreadful oh, life.
0: Parables <laughs> avoiding the stereotype.
2: So these years, would just right. be. In, I mean, a, a knight on a white horse mm. is pretty statistically unlikely. So we would <laughs> simply take the same format of very personal, intimate stories. And show the way women have really been right. strong enough and an solved their own problems.
0: Of an article in, in the tenth anniversary issue, which is the nouveau poor. This is quite uh, an astonishing one mm-hmm. by Barbara Ehrenreich, who reviews many books and writes for various other magazines, and Karen Stallard. Now, the nouveau poor by the year two thousand, all of the nations poor will be women and their children.
2: The uh, I, I hope we can stop the, keep that from happening. But this is a very important. Uh, really in-depth journalistic expose of what is happening in the economy uh, accelerated greatly by Reagan and his cuts and how much more impact the cuts in social services have on women uh, than on men. I mean, for instance, women, because of our childbearing, uh, go to physicians and doctors 30% more. Uh, because we have an unfair amount of responsibility for kids, then any cuts in childcare means that many more of us are going to be forced back out of work or, or, or even on welfare. And, um, and she is talking in this piece about a whole population of women who by birth or by marriage or both are essentially middle class. They're educated uh, and have skills. But in but are unable to find work that supports them and their children. It, it's a kind of uh, illustration of, as as one woman said to me, every most women in the country are one man away from welfare, because mm. the the yeah. uh, the, um, the economic structure is so unfair. With women still getting fifty nine cents on the dollar and aunt plus having responsibility for kids. That the and plus not having the protection of unions as much as men do, and being at the bottom <clears throat> in the pink collar ghetto among in the heavily in those jobs that are poorly paid, it means that the, the two out of every three poor people in the country are female, uh, and that the penalty that we're paying for this in paying for more social service. I mean, nothing could be more shortsighted than Reagan's cutting off of of uh, various aid programs and forcing more people on welfare because they can't go to work. Uh, but nonetheless, he goes forward with it because in the opinion of his experts, the cheapest way to raise children is to, to, to give a woman uh, subsistence pay. It's too expensive, in their view, to, to give good childcare so the woman can work and become a taxpayer. Uh, it's very short-sighted because those kids are not going to grow <coughs> up to be um, the kind of able, yeah. talented people that yeah. this country so badly needs, but that's the way they're thinking.
0: You're about, you know, but you phrase pink-collar ghetto. That's a phrase that came into being during the life of mm-hmm. Liz, hasn't no, it? No,
2: that's true. It's yeah. it's true. You know, we use all these words. I was thinking the other day that we, we that it's a major accomplishment of the last 10 years that we even have these words. We now say things like sexual harassment or battered women we understand the phenomenon that that describes 10 years ago it was just called life i mean yeah. <laughs> you know there yeah, wasn't that that's was life. just accepted yeah. it there was no word for yeah. it yeah.
0: that's life yeah. right uh, so the battered woman was quiet and, and very often she felt guilty
2: uh, that it was somehow yeah. her fault and, yeah.
0: and so by all these subjects that now come up the nature of rape as a violent act not a sexual act uh battered women not only of poor battered women in the most surprising of suburbs mm-hmm. and places, and yeah. that's now it's in the during the life of Ms. I know you've you've had articles, of course, dealing with these.
2: Yeah, phenomena. we've we've been able to um, to highlight them and explore them and report on them. First, uh, mainly because of our our readership, our readers write us thousands upon thousands of intimate, smart, wonderful, unputdownable letters. And it's from those letters, as well as from our own travels, that we see uh, what the problems really are, and sometimes also from a kind of chain reaction. For instance, we, we did a piece on incest and the response to it was so enormous that we printed the letters. I, it was the beginning of our understanding and I think the country's understanding of how, how prevalent the problem really is.
0: And this is the, uh, the woman all these years keeping a certain experience that may have altered her life one by an attitude, evolving someone quite close, uncle, boarder, mm-hmm. stepfather, closer. Yeah, have someone... Kept quiet and all that time festering and finally out and there's the letters at the very beginning there are pages of letters for the 10th anniversary mm-hmm. issue and a lot of them deal with the, the theme of liberation
2: <coughs> the, yes, the liberating of mind yeah w- when we when we um, talk about these words they, it shouldn't be seen as uh, as down or unhappy you know because it it's it is actually an up to realize that you are not alone you are not crazy that this is a whole <laughs> uh, Social problem, and to get to, to to have support from other people, and it's also a great source of humor, as you see from the letters. I mean, mm. it, the the idea that that the women's movement has no sense of humor is quite crazy. <laughs> it's it's
0: we got to talk for a second. Let's stick with that for a second. Gloria Steinem was my guest uh, editor. Well, by the way, the masthead doesn't have list editor in chief; just alphabetical order. But editor of, uh, and one of the founders of, of Ms. Uh, one of the accusations through the years has been that. And, to point out i think when any movement begins it begins with tremendous earnestness and need this could be the black revolution too or the old people's movement now i know they have a great deal of humor maggie kuhn others demand cooners but there was there was this accusation that to some extent was true but it wasn't the fault of the feminist movement it was the beginning of something
2: well i'm not sure was it, it was ever true of us or of the black movement what happens is that you stop ref- you stop laughing at anti black or anti female or anti semitic jokes that's what ge- gives you the reputation for having no sense of humor so- suddenly somebody's telling a joke about uh, a dumb blonde or a, a you know yeah. a, a terrible mother in law and you say wait a minute you know what's going on here but in fact it's always yeah. been full yeah. of in fact one of the very first issues we, we did had a cover of of a, a man saying to wo- to a woman, like a cartoon, you know, in balloons, he's mm. saying, did you know the women's movement has no sense of humor? And she's saying, no, but hum a few bars and I'll fake it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> because. Yeah. You know, and that, since you mentioned men, this has affected, of course, a good portion of the male population, hasn't it?
2: Well, that's, I mean, the whole idea, yeah. of course, yeah. as with with sex, as with race, uh, is yeah. that uh, we... Are all equal human beings, and if you say that, then y- yeah. you you end up changing the other the other folks now, too, because you increase their humanity, though you decrease their privilege.
0: Have you heard from male readers? I'm curious. You know, uh, we we do know that the macho guy has felt a threat. Obviously, you know, uh, the his 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 image, his life has always been the clinging vine, the little woman, the one he supports, the girl who's coy and cute, the little girl. <laughs> And there he is all of a sudden challenged by someone who says she is his equal. That's pretty much of a threat, isn't it?
2: It is a threat, and and there are still a lot of men who, through no fault of theirs really, society did it to them, but has convinced them that, that no matter how bad things may get, they can count on being superior to women of every race and to certain racial groups of men too. So it's pretty threatening for them to hear that they're going to have to compete on an equal basis. On the other hand, this idea of masculinity has really penalized those macho guys terribly because it has made them feel that to be a real man, they have to be violent, they have to be victorious, they have to earn a lot of money. gives them ulcers, heart attacks, uh, causes them to die earlier. I mean, I always say to men if they're really... You know, if they're really hostile, I always say, well, look, you know, here's a movement that can offer you four more years of life to live. I mean, what other movement can make you? <laughs> <laughs> that's not bad.
0: and the longevity. <laughs> is as good as cutting out cigarettes. <laughs> right. But, but there's also something else. And I remember, and that's, you still have a lot of women to reach. By the way, are you reaching older women, too?
2: Yeah, we are. uh more reaching older women. You see, it's interesting. The women's movement, took me a while to figure this out, but the women's movement is maybe the one social movement in which people get m- more radical with age. Hmm. Because a f- the female cultural pattern is the opposite of men. Men's is to be, I don't mean all men, but in a yeah. in de- general right. sense, men's is to be rebellious and so on when they're young, and then acquire power and get more and more or go home to their father's business or whatever get less and less active now women's is the other way around because when we are young we are the most conservative society is really on us then to play the female role to giggle and laugh and say how clever of you to know what time it is to you know to play this once we get older uh we have even less power we're not valuable to society anymore because we're not childbearers bearers or we're not considered pretty and all of that we don't have economic power that has accrued to men all these years and so we get very active so the 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 most active part of the women's movement has always come from slightly older women
0: well, so we have of course women and uh, men in it and the gray panthers of yes, course right. we have maggie Kuhn and her colleagues and I've given him them a theme song, by the way. No, oh, what? Yeah, well, it's one line out of Chris Christopherson's song that Janice Chaplin sang, Me and Bobby McGee. The great line is, freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. <laughs> well, that's a great line. Yeah. You know? uh-huh. And that should be the line of the great Freedom, But it applies to men and women, both. Freedom's just mm-hmm. another word for nothing. But you found the older one. The reason I ask that is because about 10 years ago, when was the first Women's Liberation Day? in our time. August
2: 26th t- it was 71 I think.
0: 71 mm-hmm. a year before Ms. was founded mm-hmm. I don't know if you were in town someone speaking there on the, at the plaza here I had a tape going and this middle aged woman getting a little worn saying those tramps up there why don't they go back get married I says well maybe they're speaking for you. I got my rights me and my husband we work all the time at night I come home I set the table for them I do what we're I said, you're equal? We're equal, except he's the boss. (laughs) And even though it was a funny joke, you were a guest on a subsequent program, and you understood that woman, that her life's gone by. Now, if these young women up on that stand are speaking of a certain kind of freedom that she's missing, it's a natural feeling for her to feel she's lost out on something. But you found many of her contemporaries. Well,
2: that's that's true, but the fact is that... uh it is the movement has as much to su- do to support her as uh, you know. So, I. I th- oh, I, th- I wasn't. Yeah.
0: I, I wasn't uh, rebutting it. Of course, i you're mean, saying this woman, in her own mind, I think felt something. You know, I, yeah. uh, their life's a waste.
2: And I, n- you I know, know. what she means. In fact, one of the most moving conversations I ever had was with a woman who was a member of the Moral Majority, and um, we were at a women's conference where. She and Mormon women had been brought in buses uh, with a man at the head of each bus to vote against what were essentially mm. their own rights. And she said to me, she was unlike many folks, she, uh, such folks, she was sincere, she really meant it. And she said, you know, all my life I have been told that if I do what I am told to do, if I have the children that God sends to me, and I play this role, you know, I, I make dinner and I do what I'm supposed to do, I will be a good person. She said my whole life has been based on having no choice. Now oh. you tell me I have choice. She said that's very frightening. Now that that your heart goes out to yeah. that woman. And not only that, but there's a piece of that woman in every woman. Because it is it is frightening to be a grown up and and, and have choice and uh, not be dependent anymore. But it is also exhilarating, and the truth is that, you know, $50 you make yourself Mm. (laughs) is worth $500 somebody gives you uh, and expects gratitude in return, uh, and so on.
0: Gloria Steinem we're talking to, and uh, the editor of Ms., one of the editors of Ms. Magazine, celebrating its 10th anniversary, and so it's 10 years of that, plus, uh, quite obviously, the increasing awareness of women and their rights, and... in in many cases, the awareness and the growth and development of men. And so this is a celebratory uh, meeting we're having here now. And we'll resume in a moment, because there's one article, among the many very excellent ones, there's one uh, dealing with the strong women, in this case, Native American feminists. And uh, you'll hear the voice of a strong woman of the 30s in a moment after this message resuming the conversation with Gloria Steinem celebrating the 10th anniversary of Ms. Magazine and a lot of you through the years you've had cases of women older younger who have been uh, Stepped out on and have come through strong women.
2: So. Oh, absolutely. I, I'm I'm continually amazed at um, I shouldn't say amazed I don't know how to put it exactly but you just just go around to any town, open any door, look in any office, you know, and you you see individual women of such such guts because they, I, I think men have to stop and and think how it would be if they were penalized for being smart, they were penalized for being assertive and good at their jobs, uh, that they were penalized for being the best they can be. That's what happens to a lot of women. So instead of being rewarded for being successful and smart and assertive and, and accomplishing something, you're punished for it. That's real hard.
0: <laughs> but you celebrate these women. There's one, and you, something you said, in every community, these are the anonymous, uh, thousands, scores of thousands, we don't know about, you try to find them. Here's one. Her name was Aunt Molly Jackson. She, lived, uh, she died a few years ago. Aunt Molly was a midwife in Kentucky, and the bitter, bitter mind strikes. I'd let her tell the story. It's the story of the '30s. she'd obviously be a heroine of Ms.
5: To having something to eat in Kentucky when the miners was all blacklisted and, uh, and no work. So I said, if I lost my life, that I would do anything in this world that I could in order to keep the children from suffering. So, there was a young family that had one child that lived just below me and I heard that little child uh, crying uh, for two days. And I went down and I asked the mother, I said, Daisy, what is the matter with that baby? She said, Aunt Molly, she's a crying for something to eat. I don't have a crust of bread for that child. So I said, is it possible that I will do more for your children, you people, than you will do yourselves? I said, in the name of common sense, have you got a 50-pound a uh, feed sack here, sugar sack or something to give me. Yes, she said. I took that sugar sack and I went back to the house. Me being a midwife, I had uh, a permit to carry a gun. I had a good thirty eight special that I'd use for my protection through them hills for 15 years then and I put it under my arm and put my coat on over it and I started to the commissary but when I got down to the foot of the hill there was another family of children of seven are crying all small children. And I said, uh, well, what is the matter with your children, Anne It was uh, Bob Stringer's wife, a good, hard-working man, and kept his family plenty when he was allowed to work. So she says, they're hungry, and I don't have a thing. And she was a crying. I said, come on, Henry, to my little son, Henry Jackson I said come on and go with me. I went into the commissary (coughs) and I went in laughing and I said to the uh, to the uh, commissary clerk I said well it don't make any difference how hard times gets Mr. Martin I said I can always have a little money or a little scrip, or something to get by on. Give me a 24-pound sack of flour. He handed me over the the 24-pound sack of flour and I whispered to my little son, I said, Henry, take this 24-pound sack of flour and walk out and wait for me at the tipple. That is where they uh, load, they weighed the coal and dumped it in the cars the boy took that sack of flour and he walked out And then I began to call for the things that was needed the worst for them little starving children and I filled my sugar sack full and <coughs> I said now, now Martin. I said if you, I'll see you in ninety days as quick as I can get around and collect enough money to pay you. Uh, but I first I says how much is this? Five dollars and ninety cents. Well, I said I'll see you in ninety days. I said uh, I have. To to feed some children, they'll start, and they can't wait for me to go around and try to collect, by nickels and dimes, enough to get them something to eat. They have to eat now, and I'll pay you, don't worry. He says, Aunt Molly Jackson, don't you offer to walk out without them groceries. I reached under my arm and I pulled my pistol and I walked out backwards and I said, Martin, if you try to take this grub away from me, I said, God knows if they electrocute me for it tomorrow, I says, I'll shoot you six times in a minute. I walked out, I got home and these seven little children were so hungry that uh, they, when the mother was uh, making up the dough to cook the bread, they was uh, grabbing the raw dough off of their mother's hands and cramming it into their mouth and swallowing it. And (coughs) I I left part of that, part of the food with that big family of children, I went on up to to Bill Allen's house and gave Daisy Allen, his wife, the rest for her little child. And <coughs> by the time my house was the next house, and by the time I got into the door, their deputy sheriff was there to arrest me. And <coughs> He said to me, he says, well, Aunt Molly, what in the world? He says, did you, he says, have you turned out, says, to be a a robber? I said, oh, no, Frank. I said, I'm no robber. But I said, it was the last chance I have heard these little hungry children cry for something to eat. Tell I'm desperate. I'm almost out of my mind. And I said, I will get out as I said and collect that money just as quick as I can and paid. I said, you know I'm as honest as the days is long. And the tears come in his eyes. And he said, <coughs> Well, Aunt Molly, he says, they sent me up here, he says, to arrest you, the coal operator. Well, Gooden sent me here to arrest you, he was a coal operator for that. But he says, if you've got the heart to do that much, he says, for other people's children, that's not one, got one drop of your blood in their bodies. He says, I will pay that bill myself, he says. And he says, if they fire me for not arresting you, he said, I will be damn glad of it. It's just the way he said. And he walked out, and he didn't arrest
0: And well, there's a story, isn't it, of quite a woman. Mm.
2: Just imagine what her life was, must have been like. I mean, this is, this is one dramatic story of an incident, but she talks about going every day through the hills, carrying a 38, you know, ministering to women who are having babies, for, you know, that's
0: <laughs> But we're talking about these unsung heroines, Lyama, who are so strong and powerful and think beyond their immediate their immediate condition. Mm. So it, they're the ones you celebrate, too. In, oh, yeah. As.
2: We do We do regular uh, kinds of features called found women, where we report on, on women like Aunt Molly Jackson who are alive and working today and should be recognized yeah. and aren't. And we do uh, regular features from history, too. Um, I should say one thing, though. This is a little hard to say yeah. after listening to Aunt Molly. But... Yeah. <laughs> uh, I it's, it's important to say that it's, it's not just poor women who suffer, <laughs> because in a way, women are always pitied and, and supported as long as they are victims, uh, which is true of other groups too. And when they get a little bit mm. together, so maybe they could mm. make some changes in the world, then they're resented. So there are ways in which um, middle class and even rich women are kept children and kept passive and kept limited. Sometimes I think, you know, that, that it happens. I mean, rich women get better dental care and they get clothes and all of that. But as as a black feminist once said to her white sisters in the South, a pedestal is as much a prison as any other small space. Mm-hmm. And uh, they... Well, there
0: was that book about uh, the woman's movement way through the years called Something Up From... the
2: down from the pedestal, or up from the pedestal, up from the pedestal. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's been very interesting to me to, to see um, women who are supposedly rich and powerful. They have they have powerful fathers or husbands, and what really happens to them. And it's it, it finally dawned on me, especially after I went back to my own twenty fifth college reunion and, and saw the contrast among us and you know what had happened to us in my own generation that. Um, that the women in, in powerful families are really kept passive and, and childlike, or there's an attempt to keep them passive and childlike because, precisely because they are in powerful families. I mean, if, if General Motors is gonna pass through your womb, they wanna make very sure you don't grab it on the way through, right? It now, goes from father to son to father to son. You're not gonna interfere with this. You
0: know, it's funny you mentioning this about the college reunion and this and your observation. You went to Smith, and there's a Smith College story. Was told, this is interesting. That is always oh, a good faculty. Uh, the faculty for the young women of upper-middle-class background. The, the teachers were very enlightened, Harry Almer Barnes on, enlightened teachers, because the theory goes... The young boys, the brothers of the family, will inherit the dough. Will be the bosses and run things. Whereas she, the girl, the sister, will marry someone and go along. And she can have a pretty good humanities education. Doesn't matter to them. The other guys will be business. You see. So therefore, uh, she could be up on all kinds of things. That's
2: right. But yeah. <clears throat> but they weren't. They weren't. Uh, they were enlightened about everything but women. Yeah. I mean. Uh, now this has changed somewhat, but my days were the fifties, yeah. which were pretty dark days, right? <laughs> and but
0: uh, Ms. Then deals with them too. Yes, yes, because
2: about. because um, th- we we have I think learned a lot uh, from from all the analysts of class who are who are absolutely right, uh, but they haven't always explained the additional problems of caste, whether it's sex or race, that um, uh, that really. I mean, you can change your class, maybe, yeah. maybe it's difficult, but it's possible. But you can't change your 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 sex or your race. And they have been ways that people have been uh, marked for, you know, inexpensive uh, labor or unpaid labor or whatever it is. And I think that we've we've had a lot of um, uh, European male philosophers who understood class because they were afflicted by it, mm-hmm. but they didn't understand the yeah. the, the sex yeah. race. Have
0: story closer to home that fits, Miz, is one told not just poor people but middle-class upper Virginia Durr of Montgomery Alabama a scrapper for many years tells a story about why she became a rebel how she did the southern young white woman of a certain class has three choices one to be the southern belle and to be nice and sweet to a father-in-law and to others and be sweet to the servants and she's the southern belle the other is to go crazy as her friend Zelda Sayre did who married F. Scott Fitzgerald and the third is to become the rebel, the questioner, which mm-hmm. she did. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the other aspect. Yeah, of
2: it. yeah. I think I think the the simplest way to say it maybe is that to to look at it sort of anthropologically. I mean, women are the most basic means of production, the means of reproduction. Right. So if uh, the, the systems that are based on race and class and so on. Um, have to restrict the freedom of women, especially the upper class women, in order to make sure that the white race remains pure, that the mm-hmm. economic mm-hmm. stuff goes down from father oh. to son, all that. And I think that the women of powerful families have often been in, in two kinds of problems. One, they didn't have power, and two, they were resented as if they did. So that it's, it's yeah. the, you know, they've had a, a, an additional kind of veil yeah. to tear away. so you tear away. all
0: aspects of it. But on that, uh, coming back to the 10th anniversary issue of Ms. and Gloria Steinem, editor, my guest, there's a n- rather fascinating one here, an intelligent woman's guide to the military mind. Mm-hmm. And so there's been sort of a general feeling now as to women's attitude as different from men towards, say, military
2: Yeah, the, it's, it's interesting because it has always been true, ever since anybody took a public opinion poll and bothered to ask women questions at all, that women have been much more skeptical of militarism and violence than men is have been. Base, is this true? I mean, yeah, it's true from, from as long as anybody knows it's true. Not because women are more moral people. We aren't. But because we haven't been raised with our masculinity to prove. We haven't been raised with the with masculine emphasis on aggression or violence or victory. Someone
0: will say there's Margaret Thatcher and there's uh, Shanta Gandhi, you know.
2: The, the, uh, yes. No, uh, it's, 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 not, uh, it's not true of everyone, although I think that even if you look, for instance, at female chiefs of state and women in Congress, you will find that their voting patterns are much more anti-military hmm. than, than their male counterparts on the average. Uh, again, not because we're, the, 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 yeah. we're different yeah. or more moral yeah. as human beings, but we but there's a profound difference in the way that, women, that little boys and girls are raised as mm. far as, mm. I mean, women are taught not to be aggressive. Men are taught to be aggressive. Yeah. Also, women are the victims of violence, overwhelmingly, statistically. So we just don't trust violence. Yeah. Now, the f- press has finally discovered this. In the very first issue of Ms., we had a whole expose of women's voting patterns. They could have read it 10 years ago. However, it was attached to issues but not to political parties because the political parties were at that point and as frequently sort of the same on military issues. Now that Reagan has become so much more militaristic than many alternative leaders, uh, it has taken on a partisan cast, so the press has discovered Mm -hmm. this voting pattern. Mm -hmm. Uh, Reagan has kind of smoked it out, but, I mean, there's a huge sex Mm -hmm. differential. The people who elected uh, Reagan were the oldest, richest, whitest, most male electorate in the history of the country, and most of them were just voting for change for the sake of change. Mm. But the, the, the sex differential is absolutely enormous. Yeah. In this issue, we've, we've published this piece of uh, an intelligent woman's guide to the military mind because though, though women have different attitudes, and I think it's very important that we exert those attitudes for the, for the safety of the planet and so on, we don't usually have yeah. the words to argue with. Mm. We may have gotten to the place of saying, well, you know, better spend this money on child care than on weaponry. But we don't get any farther than that. And we don't take the, the responsibility, which is a, respo- a moral responsibility, of saying how much defense is enough. So this is the beginning of a series that is a kind of ABC. It's it's actually great for men to read, too. The only difference sometimes between men and women about defense is that women will admit they don't know, whereas men you know, may pretend. So the, so this is yeah. really a, a kind of demystification yeah. of weaponry, the defense budget, and so on. It's going to continue. It's going to become a book and a series of so uh, these seminars are some around... some
0: of the issues that are dealt with and yeah. is. You know. So it is not... Uh, I say, a Red Book, a cosmopolitan. Will the last decade's breakthroughs be the next decade's trends? It goes on to polls again in high technology and also strong uh, Native American women. So it deals with all these issues. And so this is a way of congratulating you on your 10th anniversary. We can close with a song, <coughs> uh, again, a woman's mm-hmm. song.
3: Uh,
0: although, the, fa- the strike of 1912 up in Lawrence, Massachusetts. And it was a song, primarily sung by women, called "Bread and Roses." Mm-hmm. Too.
2: It's so wonderful yeah. that, that the strike was held, not only for bread. Yes, we need, but people need poetry and roses as well as yeah, bread. Of course.
0: What uh, any reflection before we say goodbye and hear? Well, I just Collins. like
2: to say to you that that one of the other uh, features in this issue is a piece on forty male heroes we decided that it was important to say in this big anniversary issue that there have been many men in the past decade who have take who have risked their uh, jobs and and uh, you know who really worked hard uh, for equality and had a big effect on women's lives people will have to to buy the issue to find out who the 40 are but the only reason, it says that you were not there is yes, because ma'am. is because <laughs> we we called people, we surveyed women in lots of different fields, uh-huh. and you. I just want you to know that you were very much there as I a was. hero. <laughs> but we they felt I'm that there they up. felt that your that that, that uh, your heroism could not be confined to the last decade. Oh, that's that it it. had been going on much that's longer it. than that, that's and it. this was Kurt, <laughs> this he, was for acts performed in the work, last. You ought to
0: replace dec- Jean Kirkpatrick as a diplomat. No. Well, I don't, I don't <laughs> feel
2: like a diplomat, but I'd be happy to replace Jean <laughs> Kirkpatrick. Patrick. Uh, Gloria Steinem, my <laughs> guest.
0: Uh, Ms. Magazine celebrating its 10th anniversary, and it's available and uh, very enlightening indeed. Thank you. And Judy Collins and Bread and Roses.
4: As we go marching,
3: marching
4: in the beauty